Good morning, story lovers. I am Laurel McCarg, host of Alligator Preserves, and today's special guest is author and editor Molly Sturdivant. Welcome to Alligator Preserves, a weekly podcast about revealing yourself through storytelling, story reading, and story writing but probably not story arithmetic, because that's not a thing. You just might surprise yourself with the secrets you'll uncover. Molly, welcome to Alligator Preserves. Thank you. I would like for you, first of all, to tell our listeners a little bit about you. Who is Molly Sturdivant? Um, As you said, I'm a writer and editor. I have been in Chicago for quite a while. I grew up in Colorado before that. And my degree, my degree is in philosophy, and I taught philosophy at St. Xavier University in, on Chicago's South Side for about 10 years. And towards the end of that, I started writing more creatively, and currently I'm writing and editing full-time. So I certified as an editor at the University of Chicago 2018, and so I do book editing, developmental editing, academic editing, and things like that for work. So I'm no longer teaching, and I'm just writing and editing. I have a seven-year-old and a cat. That's everything. A seven-year-old and a cat. Wonderful. Nate, what are your names of your, what's the name of your cat? The cat is Oliver. He's a little gray and white cat. (laughs) Beautiful. So as a child, as a seven-year-old, did you know that you would be a philosopher someday? Uh, I asked a lot of questions, I think, like all seven-year-olds do. But, um, yeah, I never stopped asking them, I guess. I always um, – I, I really always liked reading and writing and sort of talking about things. And then whatever that – however that amounted to a career, I was just headed in that direction, I think. And in college at Colorado State University, I double majored in English and philosophy and um, just – stumbled forward into philosophy grad school and here we are stumbling forward into it i love it but how now this is going to get into what you're working on right now how does someone with a phd in philosophy end up researching something that happened 123 years ago we're talking about the 1896 minor strike yeah because that, that's I, your current project Yes, that's right. So my area of specialization was early modern philosophy. And I always taught environmental philosophy or environmental ethics, along with early modern theories of nature, property acquisition, land use. So that was always kind of in my wheelhouse was thinking about how we, what argument do we make to say that we own land or can use it in a certain way? Um, what arguments, what counter arguments can we make to say that land should not be owned or used in a certain way? Or how do we kind of understand our our relationship to land? And so this particular project, I think, was kind of born out of teaching courses on property acquisition and revisionist Westerns. So I got very into kind of trying to think about how to undo the genre of the Western or how to think around it and how to get after the American imagination about the the story of the West. And 
how to uncover stories of the West that have not been told. And in the course of researching land use, property acquisition, and revisionist Westerns, I came across Leadville, and one thing led to the next. And this strike, I don't know that much about it, but it lasted a really long time, didn't it? This one, so Leadville had had strikes before. It had had one in 1880. It uh, the people there, the mines there, and the mining community were familiar with. They were very aware of other strikes going on in the late 19th century. So um, they were aware of what was going on in Cripple Creek, Colorado. There was a huge, really important strike there, culminated in 1894. But they were also aware of some of the big strikes in other states. So Haymarket, Pullman, um, huge kind of events in labor history at the end of the 19th century were on their radar. The 1896 strike specifically was the result of, well, basically the silver crash in 1893 when the mine owner said, well, we have to cut your wages in order to deal with this. So, okay. And then by 1896, the miners were on to the fact that um, the owners were well able to restore their wages to $3 a day. $3 a day. A day. $3 a day. And it's interesting, in 1880, they had struck for $4 a day. So, I mean, imagine prices escalate and skyrocket and their wages get cut and then cut again. So in a way, well, I should add that they were affiliated as a labor organization as the Knights of Labor, but they kind of outgrew that model and were, by, it was May of 1895, they had become affiliated with the Western Federation of Labor and they had their own local. So they were then the Cloud City Miners Union Local 33. Right. By 1895. So they were ready to go. And I think the 1896 strike, it started in May 25th, 1896. And their first request, I think, was very humble. They kind of lowballed it. It was just wage restoration. That was all it was. And that's how it started. And it ended, did it end successfully? Or do we have to wait till your book comes out? Well, I mean, you can Google it. It's, <laughs> it's public knowledge. Um, so it's largely interpreted as a loss um, insofar as there were some acts of violence. There, they did not succeed in getting their wage restored, at least then. Um, and it kind of, lasted well into 1897. But as I was researching this, I think it's very interesting. They started a small newspaper for their union called the Leadville Miner, which I tracked down in an archive in Amsterdam. Amsterdam? Amsterdam, yeah. Um, It was at the International Institute of Social History in Amsterdam. And in this newspaper, their editorials were kind of reminding themselves and each other that the point of a strike, you can think about them beyond winning or losing. There's a lot at stake. It's important to win them. But they also felt um, fairly proud of the fact that they had made quite a point and they had really 
kind of come together as a community in a way and looking forward to some upcoming labor events in Colorado history, they, it wasn't so much a complete loss, but a kind of a moment to reflect on what they were capable of, which was quite a lot, and to reflect on the importance of strikes, even when they are unlikely to be won on every term that, that the workers want. It's important anyway to sort of show up and to do this thing. And I think the language that they use in the editorials is kind of searching for a way to talk about it beyond just a loss or a victory, which really intrigued me. All right. So you ended up writing a fictional no, you're working on a fictional novel currently. And and but it's it's about a real historical event. So why didn't you just write a nonfiction book? And I, I know that you were writing fiction. How would you characterize your fiction? It seemed important to me to do this as fiction because I, I'm well familiar with academic academic writing and nonfiction, things like this. And that's fine. That activates a certain part of the brain and it activates an interest in people to think about a real event and to understand it historically. And that's good. I think fiction activates a different part of us. And fiction is the part where we see ourselves in these lives and we feel our way through it. And that feeling, I think, is, for me, has become more sort of powerful and even more educational in a way, that feeling where we're able to say this thing happened to real and ordinary people. Um, They also had stunning moments of joy and were evidently hilarious and, you know, family members and had hobbies and quirky interests. And those kind of real life moments, I think, remind us of just how resonant these stories are. So it isn't just that there was this, you know, very flashy, contentious strike that that did happen, but also leading up to that, there were people who fully imagined themselves staying in Leadville in perpetuity as a thriving middle class with children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren also staying there. They had their mind on there being a college in Leadville, a library, and there is one now, but, you know, they wanted to stake their claim to that place and to stay there. And they were absolutely confident that the strike would work. And by all accounts, it should have too. I mean, everything was in place. It was a very, you know, kind of reasonable request. Um, so I think in cre- in writing fiction, it tells a story. Do you think maybe it, it that, reaches a bigger audience? Yes. Yeah, I think so. Certainly it does. Um, but I also just purely enjoy writing. I mean, the craft of it, I think, to me is kind of inescapable. It's something I, I can't help but do also. So... Well, after after living in Leadville for 12 years, my family lived in Leadville for 12 years before moving down to Salida here, I I can honestly say that you do need to have a sense of humor in order to live in a place, (laughs) even now, and I always imagined while I lived there, anytime I might want to complain, I imagined the first people to make it there, and 
the miners and the conditions they worked under and the women, what they must have endured. You know, no central plumbing, no uh, meals ready to eat, no microwaves, no personal hygiene things. I mean, when, when I think of the luxuries that we have today, I'm stunned by the fact that we're here today because of our ancestors. So you had to create a bunch of characters because it's fiction, but I'm imagining you might have used some real people. And so tell me a little bit about your characters and do you have a a favorite character? Yeah, you know, I really, I wanted to put women sort of at, at the forefront of this thing. And when dealing with mining strikes, it's very very man heavy, of course, because it was all men that were doing the mining. So in in trying to sort this out, I I was thinking about this too, in the tradition of, of writing about the West or even Westerns and things. And it's often the case that when we want to put women up front in these stories, we, we uh, kind of mirror the idea of the rugged individual man hero. And we make the female protagonist witty and resourceful and probably hot, definitely able, probably sharp-tongued, probably a sharpshooter, probably a good dancer. And I thought, you know, what about <laughs> aren't women utterly heroic and also having chronic back pain? They're tired at the end of the day. They don't always know what to say. They're doing mundane tasks that nobody will really notice. What about, you know, that kind of heroic quality that has to do with keeping daily life afloat? So I found that that community and that humor is best expressed almost through the idea of a shared protagonist. There is one, her name is Frances, but she and her sister kind of collectively behave within a community of neighbors and women. And these women in particular kind of have all the inside knowledge and are constantly keeping the wheels turning, both of the strategy for the strike and how to keep their families afloat in every imaginable condition. And they deal with birth and death, you know, in its immediacy with the actual bodies. And that kind of labor, both emotionally and physically, is so often unseen, right? Just getting getting a baby out, dealing with a dead body when you can't afford um, an embalmer or a burial. So the characters in the story, the women here are everyday heroes collectively. I don't know if that answers your question exactly, but there are all, there's also a particular team of miners that are related to them by various relationships who we follow throughout the story. And we know what each of those guys, each of the, each of them does and their specific tasks, but it's the women that are kind of kept up front as the, the focus of our attention. I, I like that. So your, your research has taken you to several places, right? Uh, have you found any, well, talk, talk to us a little bit about like where you've gone to do this research, archival research. And have you found any ancestors of the actual miners from Leadville or uh, in Leadville or, or elsewhere? Yeah, so um, the, the archives I have been to 
Last year, I spent some time at CU Boulder in the Rare and Distinctive Collections, which is in the basement of the library on campus there. Um, And they have a collection called the Western Federation of Miners and the International Union of Mine, Mill, and Smelter Workers Archives. In short, really just the WFM archives. And I am amazed by this collection. It's incredible. Um, It's boxes and boxes of union paraphernalia, pamphlets, cards, meeting minutes, strategies for organization dating way, way, way back to, um, I guess, even before the Western Federation of Miners, dating back to some of the earlier labor clubs and organizations like the Knights of Labor and um, things like this. They also had Pinkerton spy reports, which were really incredible to look at. Um, So I did that. I was also in Leadville at the Lake County Public Library in the Leadville room, looking through quite a few of their treasures. Um, That was an incredible opportunity as well. And yes, I have connected with a number of people in Leadville that are working on a memorial in Evergreen Cemetery. And in that cemetery, there are about 1,400 unmarked graves of the immigrant mining community. And there's quite a lot of interest right now in memorializing those people and drawing attention to their lives and even connecting them with some of their descendants. And in the process of connecting with those people in that project, I have been able to talk with a couple of people in Leadville that are connected all the way back to the late 19th century, um, mainly Irish immigrant community. Mm-hmm. And I'll be in Leadville this weekend again to, to talk to some more people. So with all of those assets available to you, how do you, do, how do you sort through them? How do you not get overwhelmed? And how long have you been working on this? A year and a handful of months now, about a year and four months. Um, and I, I definitely get overwhelmed. I'm not the most organized researcher. Um, for anyone listening, don't follow any of my advice. On <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I think librarians and archivists were probably mildly annoyed with me because I, you know, res- academic research is set up for the researcher who has a specific need. And when you go into these places as a researcher, you say, I need box 12 folder seven and they go get it. I walk in and I'm like, oh, show me what you got and I'll see what I want to look at. You know, and like, well, what do you want to see? I'm like, everything, just give me the keys. I mean, I don't even know yet what slip of paper or object is going to inspire me. I want to see everything that you have. So it does get overwhelming. I definitely went down some rabbit holes, you know, that maybe didn't lead anywhere. And it was, it took a monstrous effort for me to discipline myself to kind of cut it off when I knew that I had something that needed to make it onto the page. I'm, I'm not naturally inclined to kind of to do that. I'm, I I would love to sit on a heap of archival material and just look at it, you know, with no goal or plan, but I really had to work to say, all right, these are the things I want to 
that I want to have in the novel. Because literally you could research forever and ever and go back and back and back and bring in all kinds of things. So yes, the, the idea of disciplining, having an end point uh, is, is good. So that's a good piece of advice <laughs> that people should follow. You know, know, know when to stop the research and get to the project. So in the course of your year and a half of research, were there any big surprises? Yeah, you know, I, I, uh, I really enjoyed learning about Leadville specifically with this, with all these archival materials. I mean, I grew up in Colorado. I had been there many times as a kid going in and out of the mountains. And we always heard of this, you know, the great men of mining and every imaginable story about Horace Tabor and, you know, over and over again. And Leadville is so often presented, and I think most mountain towns are kind of presented as these wild, unruly towns. And in a way that that's not untrue, but the central Rocky Mountains had better public transportation in the 1890s than they do now. It, it would be easier in 1895 to get from Leadville to Grand Junction to Telluride, to Durango and back than it is now on what? the train. Right? Yes, absolutely. By public transportation, right? By train. The trains were good. They were frequent. They went everywhere. And, you know, there's so many stories of people taking trains here or there for a weekend. Well, we'll just get on the train and go. We're very car dependent now, entirely car dependent. I mean, you have, you have to have a car or find a ride and that's that's it that's all that there is and there were also dances constant dances there were dances every tuesday and friday at the knights of labor hall they were 50 cents um before the silver crash and then they lowered the price and they were always free for ladies but they also um i forgot his name he had a very funny name there was a guy named professor somebody that gave a dancing class before every dance and there was there was, in a way, more of a social fabric. I mean, you, you would have to try hard not to meet someone. Say you were single. I mean, you would have to. It, 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 it was not a lonesome tumbleweed going down the street, shoot em up kind of rough and tumble town. And the mountain towns are so often presented that way. I mean, they had public reading rooms. They had ladies golf, bicycle races, which they still do. <laughs> but, you know, these social dances and these opportunities for, for meeting people and for gathering to go from town to town to do fun things was very, very easy. And I think if we want to talk about mountain towns being lonesome now, I think it's, it's maybe they're, lones maybe they're, they're lonesomer. <laughs> now in a certain way you know when you talk to people young people trying to kind of make a life you know it's very car dependent you don't meet a lot of people and people who work in some of the high mountain towns you know my brothers have worked in Telluride and Ridgeway and Rico and Durango and it's extremely hard to live in those towns if you're doing you know working class work it's very unaffordable. So there's a lot of resonance back and forth, I think. But yeah, I think what surprised me is just how uh, kind of 
sophisticated Leadville was in a way, um, very high tech, lots of social opportunities. And you, you talk about the loneliness and, and young people now and cost of things. And of course, the pandemic, which is ongoing, has that in any way affected your research and your writing? Uh, you know, not so much, only insofar as it was really hard to do it because, um, you know, in 2020, uh, my son was sent home from elementary school. And so suddenly I was teaching elementary school by day. And I was still teaching at the university when COVID first happened. So I would basically teach elementary school in the basement <laughs> by day and then go upstairs and do my university lectures on Zoom and all. Of, it was it was it was unbearable. It was not not okay. <laughs> you know, um, my mom came out to Illinois and she in in the next year, you know, school was all online for my child's first grade year. And she came and helped out with some of that during the day. So I could work during the day. But at that point, I didn't take any more teaching classes. I just went to full time editing. Um, but it was. It was just sort of impossible to be a creative person and to put energy into creative work when you were also working and had a young child in the pandemic era. It just Working and teaching and grading and yeah, not a lot left at the end of the day. Yeah. <laughs> and so right so now, I was, I was going to say right now where you are, you are a writer in residence in a place called Elsewhere Studios in Paonia, Colorado. So I'm fascinated by this because that's where you are right now physically. So tell me about how you got this residency and how long you're going to be there. And are you having a blast? Yes, I am. <laughs> I love it so much. Um, it's fantastic. So Elsewhere Studios, yeah, it's in Paonia. Um, and I mean, I am from Colorado and I really had hardly heard of Paonia. And my brother, I have a brother in Ridgeway and another one in Durango. And my sister's in Durango. And my mom lived in Cortez for a while in this Durango now, but they hadn't heard of it either. It's fantastic. I just love it. And Elsewhere Studios is a wonderful place. And I think it's just been incredible to be here. So I'm here for the month of January. Um, in my own space. And there are two artists upstairs in their own spaces as well, woodworker and a textile worker. And so we sometimes talk about what our projects and our process together. But other than that, we have no obligations or anything to do except create work. And I think, you know, the pandemic era, <laughs> working and having a kid in that era has definitely been an education in how to use time wisely. And so while I'm here, I have been just writing and reading for this novel nonstop because it's almost impossible to do it at home. So it's just been a perfect space. I go out walking. Um, it's beautiful. We did a cross-country ski trip up at Grand Mesa and skied under the full moon. It was lovely. But other than that, it's mostly just sitting at this very desk writing this thing. So how did, how did you find elsewhere and how, yeah, what, what, what kind of application process was it? Because you have to apply, right? They don't just take anyone. That's right. 
No, um, the application process, I think I started it in 2018, which is kind of amazing to me. Yeah, so there's an application process, and then I was accepted in 2019. For some reason, so I was supposed to go in the summer of 2019. And I don't remember why, but then it got moved to January of 2020. And then it got canceled, moved to January of 21 and got canceled. And so we finally did it this year. So it it was four or five years in the making just to get here because there were so many cancellations because of COVID. And you just, you were just looking specifically for residencies? Yes, I had, I had scouted out, resi- they're always on my radar. You know, I'm always kind of looking at various residency programs. Um, I had done a residency at the H.J. Andrews Experimental Forest in Oregon in May of 2018. It was two weeks where the writer or the artist lives with scientists doing long-term ecological research. And I loved it. And what I did there was, you know, successful and was published. And I kind of, I really can do well with time by myself, but it's just very hard to get. And so I always have, you know, lists of possible residencies on my radar because they're, they're essential. They're essential, I think. I mean, especially to a, a working parent, like just to not be interrupted for a month is just an incredible feeling. I, yeah, I can't even imagine. So do you have a title for your book? I do. Yes. Um, can you share it or will you have to kill me? I can. No, no, you can know it. Um, it is called The Sleepers, like people who sleep, The Sleepers. And the reason is because in the Pinkerton spy reports, the the mine ownership refused to recognize the union. That was their first pushback against the strike. They would never say union. They would never say union member. They wouldn't write it, type it, speak it. And so the word they used to refer, refer to the union, their family members, neighbors, was sleepers. So in a spy report, they would say, I spoke with Jerry Dermody, a sleeper, at the arcade saloon. He said, you know, so on and so forth. So this novel is about the sleepers. It's like a code name. Yeah. And they had code names for themselves as well, which are hilarious. I think I don't know. Um, so the mine owners at the time were David Moffat, um, even Smith, Kingsley Woods, I think was his name, and a couple of others. But those were the big, the big guys. And they referred to themselves as lion, tiger, and bear. Oh, my. I know. Yeah, it's pretty outrageous. But yeah, those, those were their, their chosen code names. Are you, you're not finished yet, right? You're, I'm not. How close? The beginning and the end are are written. And interestingly, the ending is what came to me first. Um, the beginning sort of became apparent to me more recently. And now I'm kind of fleshing out the middle to make sense of, of that framework. It's a really strange way to go. I didn't know that that's how it was going to be. I don't know if I would recommend it, but that's what has happened. So, and and what happens if you write when you write the middle and you find that your ending has to change? Could that happen? 
I don't, I don't think so. I'm pretty close at this point. I can make minor tweaks, but it wouldn't be a big change. I'm sort of in like at the 75% mark. I'm like three quarters of the way through, like right, right there in the last third of it, really. And you have another couple weeks and then you're going into a month long agent search query intensive. What will you be doing in February? Yeah, February, I'm enrolled in a class at the Story Studio of Chicago, which is a really great group. Um, They do really neat classes and workshops and things. And so in the month of February, they were doing, um, it's called Pub Crawl, as in Publishing Crawl. And it's a weekly kind of intensive class on publishing and querying, which I want to do, you know, on one hand, as an editor, a book editor, that's great for me to kind of know more about, um, but also to get assistance and coaching and how to think through composing query letters and sending them out and that whole process, which which can take a really long time, a year or more. It's You have to have a pretty thick skin. It's not an easy process. No, I, I know. I'm aware. Yeah. I, I self-publish. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I hope maybe you'll come back after that and tell us how successful you were. Cause I know you're going to be successful because this is a very interesting way of presenting something that again, most people don't know anything about. And they're, I know they're going to want to based on your writing because you have received so many accolades in the past for your other writing. You write in other genres. So tell us yeah. a little bit about your other genres and which accolade impresses you most about yourself. Oh my God. <laughs> Oh, wow. That's a great question. Well, so I write short fiction and poetry. And I think, I think because I came out of a different discipline, I did not do an MFA. I think um, I did not have any pressure to write or perfect a particular genre. I never had to say, well, I guess I'll go into the poetry program, or I better go into the short fiction program or something like this. And I'd Although sometimes I wish I had that sort of structure and education and, you know, access and things like that. I do appreciate that I just am untethered completely. I could write anything I want anytime. And I sort of never knew. I don't know. I would try a poem and see how it went and try short fiction and see what happened. Creative nonfiction as well. And I think most recently, I guess a publication I'm most proud of is I have a sort of personal essay called Future Mountains in the Dark Mountain Project. And I really, I've sort of been a fan of the Dark Mountain Project. They started out with their Dark Mountain Manifesto, I think in the early aughts. And I've, I always taught that text in my environmental philosophy courses. And I always loved the work they put out. So to finally land a piece in the Dark Mountain Project was, was really exciting for me. Um, and I like how they come to terms with environmental um, change, environmental loss or mourning and things like this. So I love that essay in the home that it's in. Um, and it's about Colorado also and about mining and about loss. And I think for the accolades, I was surprised last year I was nominated for a second push cart in poetry. And I thought both times I was a little surprised, I think. The poems that those were based on were, I think, 
I, I don't know. It just, it surprised me. I would go back and I would look at them and think I, that they had more of an in. Both of those poems were almost more accessible, um, more relatable than what I often write. Because when you come out of a PhD in philosophy and you teach philosophy for time, you are under no obligation to be intelligible. I mean, you're entire your discipline. <laughs> you can go as high as you want. You can talk shop with people in your discipline and be obscure. And but I think what I appreciated about those nominations was I realized that the connection people might have with those poems is based on a more clear, accessible and sort of resonant language. It, they were not so high-minded as, or they didn't have such a high diction. They didn't try to be obscure or clever. They were more just like, here is raw feeling. And that, is that think, easy? Is that easier for you? Well, it's a little, it, it is, maybe it's easier, but you know, I, I, I think like a lot of writers, I struggle between wanting to be unseen and unknown and secretive and private but also crazy famous at the same time. <laughs> you know, it's like poetry is such a weird thing. Like, here, let me give the world my darkest, most intimate secrets. That's terrifying. And yet we do it. And then you find out people have read it, which is what you wanted to happen. But kind of now you're totally scandalized by this <laughs> You know, so I think the prizes, they were just a reminder that um, people like to be let into the poem. It doesn't have to be so many words, so much diction, you know, so much obscurity. And again, once you release your work into the world, like any artwork, it's no longer yours, right? There it goes. There mm -hmm. it goes. It's, it belongs to, to the people. So on a completely different side of your, your mundane life, you provide editorial services mm -hmm. for writers. So tell tell our listeners a little bit about that. Yeah, I I um I love editing. Actually, I think it it was a really natural switch from academia to something I could do from home as a freelancer. But I got really into it. I certified at the University of Chicago through their editing certificate program, and I have edited a lot of academic work academic monographs, mostly like whole books being written by professors. So not so much dissertations or papers, but I really like editing nonfiction. Um, but I've also done work editing memoirs, one novel. And it seems like um, I'm kind of coming out as a gen generalist in terms of editing. And people have some misgivings about that because they like to have a niche or a specialty but I find myself sort of well able to take on big projects. So I'm, I'm good at helping somebody who has kind of a complete messy draft of a large project, thinking, think through how to make that thing, how to give it shape. So, you know, I don't, I don't so much edit, you know, email communications, advertisements, or smaller projects. Um, I'm more of a big picture thinker, definitely a developmental editor, although I've done copy editing work as well. But I think I'm since my training for so many decades, whether in philosophy or writing, has been about delivering the story, the arc, or the argument, right? I'm good at both imagining myself to be the, the interlocutor or the reader, 
and kind of bouncing back their questions or also being able to say, have you ended in the place where you wanted to start? Have you made good on your promise? Have you fulfilled the arc? And I think some of that comes out of, you know, a decade of grading essays. Um, and reading probably tons. Reading so much and quickly and just kind of developing that muscle for getting through a large project with some, you know, at a, at a pretty hearty clip. Do you have a favorite genre you like to read that, that would be surprising? Like, are you a closet romance reader? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm oddly kind of skeptical. I don't know. Romance, not so much. I read so widely. I mean, I sat down the other day. I can show you. I was so fascinated by this. I was reading The Nature of Earth, an Introduction to Geology. It's actually a course guidebook. I was reading it like a page turner. I was like, huh. So that's how the non-ferrous metals come about. You know? <laughs> um, and I, and I, when I was on the residency in the H.J. Andrews Forest, I was going through um, scientific treatises and these giant books put together by the Department of Agriculture. And I still have, you know, they said to take a couple of them. And one of them is called Historic Avalanches in the Northern Front Range and the Central and Northern Mountains of Colorado. And it's a general technical report by the Department of Agriculture, but it's totally fascinating. And I think sometimes these obscure works of nonfiction give you just an idea of what an avalanche sounds like, or they give you an idea of why a miner might find a fossil on a 750 huh. level. And from these little tidbits of obscure scientific information, you can just build an entire day of someone's life. And I think I love doing that. That's wonderful. I love I love that. I've find myself fascinated by going through ocean oceanic types of YouTube videos. I was a big uh, fan of Jacques Cousteau growing up as a kid and you know, learning that the fact that we've only explored about 3% of our underwater worlds just it, mine is mind-blowing. And the creatures that are under there are you can't even make them up in in fiction. I mean, they're they're fantastical. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Nonfiction stuff is gold for writing mm -hmm. any for writing anything, for writing nonfiction or fiction. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So you're you're gonna be in Leadville this weekend. Tell us about uh, I think you're going to the Leadville, the Lake County Public Library. That's right. Yeah, I'll be in the Lake County Public Library. Um I'm going to read a little bit from the novel, um, some parts that are that are ready to share. And I'll talk a little bit about the research I did at the, in the Leadville room at the Leadville, at the public library. And so, you know, I'll, I'll kind of get into a little, a little bit of that. Like why, when I'm going through these materials, it's not always that I'm looking for the most exciting story. I'm almost looking for the most mundane sentence or sheet of paper that I can build off of. I, I found a druggist's receipt for a tube of vermicide for a child. Oh, my. That's, that's an entire day in someone's life to have a child struggling, probably with giardia or, or something, a waterborne diarrhea illness, something, to scrape together 25 cents 
And when you're making 250 a day, after all the expenses, you're going to have to really scrape to go get that tube of vermicide and hope for the best, you know. So it's finding these little scraps and just staring at them and then building, you know, a day off of these historical fragments. I'm going to talk a little bit about that, my, my theory of 1800s Leadville as a sophisticated place to be. That will raise some eyebrows. Uh-huh, I know. Um, and I'll probably get pizza and mountain pies on 4th, and that's about, that's about it. That's the plan so far. All right, and then in April, you're, you are going to do a presentation for the Chafee County Writers Exchange of which I'm the membership board member, and, and we are very honored that you're going to be doing that for us. And by then, maybe you'll have something to tell us about your month-long query and agent search. Yes, I hope so. And it's such an honor to be invited um, in April. I'm really looking forward to it. Thank you. I hope that I'll have something to report. <laughs> I hope so, too. And I, you know, one thing that one question that kind of interests me already is how to talk about this um, in terms of literary fiction or historical fiction. And it's kind of an ongoing question I have. So I'm hoping that these classes in February will help me sort out a little bit about that. Wonderful. So where can people find you, find your work and get your editorial services? Online. And thank you for asking. Um, yes, hire me um, or read my work <laughs> online at. Uh, my website is just mollysturdivant.com, and I'm on Twitter, MK Sturdivant. So it's just at MK Sturdivant is my handle. And I, I post quite like the most up-to-date updates go on Twitter, and then I put things up on the website as they come as well. But I am easily found through both of those places. All right. And you're going to send me some photos and I will post photos with links of the things in show notes that we've talked about today. So you can go to my website at leadvillelaurel.com. I'm still leadvillelaurel.com, even though I live in Salida, because, you know, how could I give up that name? I just can't. Yeah. <laughs> it does sound really good. That's a lot of calls. Well, Molly, I hope the rest of this month at Elsewhere Studios in Paonia, is successful and you get all that middle part, the hardest part really in any book finished. And I hope you don't find that you have to change your ending. And I will look forward to uh, seeing you again in April. Well, thank you, Laurel. This has been just a joy. Thank you so much for having me. You're very welcome. We will be in touch soon. Alligator Preserves is hosted and produced by Laurel McCard with technical support provided by her husband, Mike McCard. Follow her on her website at leadvillelaurel.com, where she writes about life, real, and imagined. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might enjoy her books. Find her work at amazon.com.